By the time the main event went off, Snaphook was back in his barn stall, his workday long since done. Six hours earlier, at a little afternoon, the three-year-old chestnut thoroughbred trotted out onto the rain-sodden turf, loaded into starting gate number 12, the furthest outside post position, and waited to run. It was the third race of his young career, his first at the hallowed grounds of Churchill Downs, and Snaphook broke well. He was in fourth place at the quarter pole, just a length off the lead. Another quarter mile later, he pulled into second place, a half length from the front. The next two furlongs, though, took their toll, and Snaphook dropped anchor. He fell back to ninth place, and he remained there until the last three horses yet to pass him eventually did. Snaphook finished 12th in the 12-horse field, 19 and three-quarter lengths behind the winner, Irish Territory. It was the kind of race most fans take no notice of, and certainly there wasn't much reaction to the result among the 157,000 patrons on hand that first Saturday in May 2018. Many were still finding their seats or figuring out how to stay dry on what would become one of the wettest Kentucky Derby days in history. The mint juleps had only just begun to flow, as had the cash. Only $1.5 million worth of win, place, and show bets were placed on that race, race four on that day's card. Less than 1% of the $209 million that would be wagered on Churchill's 13 races, which included the 144th run for the Roses. This was, after all, a maiden special weight race, which means that the only horses eligible for that field were ones who had never before won a race. Fans hadn't seer-suckered up to bother themselves over a bunch of winless no-names. At that point in the day, the crowd was there primarily to drink up and count down the last hours until the annual return of the most iconic two minutes in American sports. It's a good thing Snaphook had already secured a spot in a backstretch barn, across the track from the legendary Twin Spires, which were difficult to see that day through the steady rain and diminished light. For their last-place performance, Snaphook and his human connections pocketed a cool $314, which would not have been enough for them to even buy a ticket for a backless seat in the grandstand bleachers, not on Derby Day. Still, he had time to cool down, eat dinner, and settle in for a restful night, while another three-year-old chestnut named Justify took what would be his first steps toward Triple Crown immortality. Five weeks after that derby day, Justify ran his last race, the Belmont Stakes, which he won. His career was short, just six races in total, but it was perfect. He earned $3.8 million on the track and then retired for more lucrative pastures. Justify will spend the rest of his days extending his regal bloodlines as the most sought-after stud in the business. Snaphook, on the other hand, is still running. He's taken to the starting gate 19 times since that sloppy Saturday in Louisville. He's a gelding, which, as the old joke goes, is a guy cut out to be a bachelor. No breeding shed is waiting for him at the end of his career, and so he continues to race. It's what racehorses do. In fact, this Saturday, December 5th, 2020, Snaphook will saddle up for the Iron Horse, the last race of the day for the 21st annual Claiming Crown Championships. 
Gulfstream Park in South Florida will host this most unique of race days, a showcase event reserved not for the blue-blood thoroughbreds of the sport of kings, but for its blue-collar horses. It is the equine equivalent of the 15-minute window when Bushwood Country Club let its caddies use the pool, a four-legged festivus for the rest of us. It's a day when the understudies take center stage. And though these horses and many of their connections do not have the means of their elite counterparts, make no mistake, their dreams are just as real and just as meaningful. Welcome to the Out of Left Field podcast. Today, we celebrate the everyman and the every horse. We will take a look at an overlooked but vital part of the horse racing industry's business model, the claiming game. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of all thoroughbred races run in the United States every year is a claiming race, the lowest rung on the ladder of competitive horseplay, which means every race card at every track in the country features claimers far more often than they do celebrity horses like Justify and his best-in-class peers. But just because a fight is on the undercard doesn't mean it's not worth watching or that its characters are any less compelling than the headliners whose more recognizable names are on the marquee. Claimers run everywhere, every day. But there is only one day on the calendar reserved for their stories. Claiming Crown Day. And that day is today. Now, Higher Desire gets into gear. He's taking off on the outside with Son Above. Eighth Paul, a point well made to the outside of Unruly Zeal. Here comes Higher Desire. A point well made, Unruly Zeal and Higher Desire. It's five and one to the line together. A point well made and Derek Bell. Yes, they win the Iron Horse. A point well made pulls the upset at 12 to one. The claiming crown was born in the summer of 1999, conceived and coordinated by Toba, the Thoroughbred Owners and Breeders Association, and the National HBPA, the Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association. The Claiming Crown began as a six-race event on a midsummer card at Minnesota's Canterbury Park. The track in the Twin Cities suburbs may have lacked the grandeur of the Twin Spires, but the debut was an unmistakable success. Horses came to compete from California, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Texas, New Jersey, and the claiming crown card drew the attention of off-track bettors from across the country. Canterbury enjoyed the largest single-day handle in its history and its biggest crowd since reopening for racing four years earlier. As it turned out, there was an appetite, after all, for a sort of poor man's breeders' cup, showcasing the sport's unheralded horses and humans. Boy, it seems a long time ago, and I guess it was when you look back over 20 years, the large on-track attendance that Canterbury used to get for those races, it was incredible, David. Um, it was almost their Kentucky Derby Day in Minneapolis. That's Dan Metzger, president of TOBA, who joined the organization in 1999 after working at the Breeders' Cup. Over its 21-year history, the claiming crown has been one of Metzger's favorite events. It's being run these days at Gulfstream Park in Miami, home of such high-profile races as the Grade 2 Fountain of Youth Stakes or the Grade 1s, the highest class of competition, 
the Pegasus World Cup, Pegasus World Cup turf, and the Florida Derby. Gulfstream obviously is a marquee track in terms of hosting major events, whether it be the Florida Derby, obviously leading into the Kentucky Derby, or the Pegasus um, in January. But those early years at Canterbury, when you had 10, 12,000 people, and it really felt the excitement of a claiming crowd. The claiming crowd was their day, biggest day of the year. So that's, you know, it's, it's met, it's had different challenges, and it's had different um, accomplishments over the years. But first and foremost is obviously being able to recognize these unsung horses uh, and give them the opportunity to compete for purses that they're not accustomed to competing for and being able to run against horses that they normally wouldn't be running against. Let's stop here for a moment to clarify just what a claiming horse is. It's not entirely accurate to say it's just a lower caliber of racehorse like, say, a Class A minor league baseball team would be when compared to a major league club. But let's start there. At the top of the food chain are the stakes races. Chances are, if you've heard of a race, from the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont, to the Travers, the Haskell, the Bluegrass, and so forth, it's a graded stakes race. Probably a grade one, though there are three levels of graded stakes, and then another tier of ungraded stakes races. Keep in mind that the better the race, the richer the purse, and in many cases, the more expensive it is for an owner to enter a horse in that race. Then there are allowance races, which typically are a middle-of-the-road stepping stone for horses that may have won a maiden race but are not yet ready for stakes competition. Then there is the base of the pyramid, the bottom and the largest tier of thoroughbred racing, the claimers. It's important to know that in the claiming game, the action is not confined to the track. And here's where things may get a little confusing. So let me say this. In racing, it helps to have a guy, someone to give you tips or insights into a horse or a race or a track bias or whatever. And since I started to follow horse racing in the mid-90s, I've had a guy who I've learned from and leaned on to translate certain racing concepts into layman's terms for me. He's the one who taught me how to read a racing form, made sure I understood basic handicapping concepts like pace makes the race. He even showed me how to secure a good spot in the infield on Derby Day. Over the years, I trusted my guy enough to have him serve as the best man at my wedding. And I figured the best way for me to explain what happens when a horse is entered into a claiming race is to turn once again to my guy, Mr. Shubes. You're willing to let your horse get purchased if somebody who is there at the track wants to go up to a window and buy your horse. Uh, If they do, as the owner, you get uh, whatever the purse is and they get the horse. That's my guy. All right, did you follow that? All horses entered into a claiming race are available to be claimed by anyone at the track willing to plunk down a predetermined amount of money. Take Friday's fourth race at Gulfstream, a $16,000 claiming race. If someone at the track submitted a claim before the race started, they could walk away as the owner of a brand new racehorse. That's exactly what happened Friday. A trainer put in a claim for strong ending who went into the six-furlong race as the favorite. Strong Enning finished second. The owner who entered him won 4600 bucks, and a new owner left with the horse. In this way, the claiming game provides perhaps the single greatest opportunity in racing, if not in all of sports. Anyone can get involved. 
often for a relatively reasonable investment. Do I have that right, Steve? That's what the claiming is. The purpose it serves for the industry, uh, it, it's basically, it's, it's one of the more interesting secondary markets that are out there. Um, it brings liquidity to, to the market. You know, a horse is not something that's easy to, to find a buyer for. Um, and it's, there's a lot of transaction costs involved. If you think about private transactions of horses, but this is a way to, to allow people to um, buy and sell horses more, more easily. The claiming game, then, is not just about the horses. It's also about all the owners and trainers who could never get near a triple crown caliber of horse without a paddock pass. It's the most egalitarian entry point into sports ownership for so many people who would otherwise be priced out. Horse racing is unique in this way. You're not going to a minor league ball game and leaving with a shortstop, but anyone can claim their way into the racing game. It's a way for the average, for, for, for an average Joe guy off the street to walk in and, and, and get a horse, you know, rather than going to the sale and spending X amount of dollars and waiting, waiting a year or two years for the horse to get ready to run. You know, if somebody wants action right away, they go get their license and uh, they can claim a horse immediately. That's trainer Peter Walder. We'll hear more from him in a minute. First, let's circle back to Snaphook, that horse who ran on the undercard that day that Justify won the Kentucky Derby. That race turned out to be the one clunker performance of Snaphook's career. A year later, he'd win a maiden claiming race at Churchill, then another claiming race before going up to Saratoga, where he hit the board in two allowance races. He then went to Keeneland, where, in a $30,000 claiming race, Snaphook was claimed. For the first time in his career, he wouldn't leave the track with the guy who brung him. On May 1st of this year, Snaphook ran in an $8,000 claiming race at Gulfstream Park. Trainer Jorge Delgado put in the claim for a new outfit called Hee Racing, which had run its first horse only a month earlier. Snaphook finished fifth. His original owner pocketed $150 of purse money plus the $8,000 sales tag, and Hee-Haw had itself a new horse. In the six races he's run since then, Snaphook has four wins and two second-place finishes. Hee-Haw's $8,000 investment has returned $70,000 in prize money. And today, Snaphook will go in the Claiming Crown Iron Horse, a race with a $75,000 purse open to horses just like him, three-year-olds and up, who at some point in their lifetime started a race for a claiming price of $8,000. One of the horses running against him will be Charlie the Greek, a six-year-old 30-to-1 shot trained and owned by Peter Walder. You know, a lot of times, a lot of times you find a diamond in the rough, like, like we did with Liza Star. You know, they were claimed for 6000 and, you know, won seven races and made 250 But most of the times you're just looking for something that, that you know, that you could claim and run back for the same thing and, and get a purse. You know, if you look down here in Florida in particular, um, a $6,250 claiming horse, uh, the winner's share, if it's a Florida bread, is 11600 Like, who wouldn't want a barn full of those? I mean, I know, you know, maybe Todd doesn't or Chad doesn't or Bill Mott doesn't, but if I own a horse and you're going to tell me I could buy a horse for 6000 and run it back in 30 days, and if he wins, he's going to get back 11600 I'm signing up for that all day long. So... You know, whereas if you go if you go buy a horse in the sale or 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 whatever, then then you got to wait a whole lot longer to get your return on investment back. But 
it's it's not as it's not as um fancy per se as the as the, as the triple crown races or so you know breeders cup day but hey i mean i've never seen somebody with a frown walking out of the winner's circle unless they just lost a horse that went by 10 you know most people are smiling when they walk out of there because the bottom line is a win is a win you know and everybody's happy when you win walder has done his share of winning liza star who we mentioned wired the field in the claiming crown glass slipper a year ago She's back in the $80,000 race for fillies and mares this year and was the morning line favorite in a field that includes another Walder trainee, Decente. Walder has won four claiming crown races over the years, so he knows how much it means to win on this day. He knows that for many of the owners he gets to work with, like the group he put together for Charlie the Greek and Cree's Brooklyn Law, who will run today in the rapid transit, that this day is the pinnacle the biggest race they will have the chance to win. He knows what it means to get a shot at something special. Because back in 2011, Walder trained a horse named Force Freeze to a stakes win at Monmouth Park, then to a second-place finish in the Grade 1 Vosburg at Belmont. A month later, when the field entered the home stretch in the Breeders' Cup sprint, Walder's horse, with Hall of Fame jockey Johnny Velasquez in the saddle, was on the lead. When they turned for home and, and he was in front and Johnny's looking under his under his right arm for the competition, I, I I mean, I literally went numb. I mean, it was just like, and it really wasn't to me. It wasn't about the money. Um, yeah, I mean, it would have been nice to have the eighty thousand, but for me, I, I just know that uh, those chances come few and far between to somebody like me because I I don't get babies uh, of any quality uh, to, to the quality of Baffert or Fletcher or anything like that. To be that close. When you, you know, when it's been years, I mean, it took me, I think it took me like 11 years to win my first stake race. And, you know, God knows how long it took me 20 something years to get in the Breeders' Cup. So I don't know if I'll ever have that chance again. Really, that's what the claiming game is all about. A chance. Listen, I'd love to win with Liza Starr again. But, I mean, that being said, I mean, I don't think Ron's going to be here. But, um, I mean, if, if we could win with Kreisberg and Law or, or, or Charlie the Greek, I mean, those, the, the partnership on those two horses with the Boyer Estes and, 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 and Hanley. Uh, I mean, I, I think they would be just beside themselves. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, they all came down here. Um, I don't know. I don't know if they would actually, they're supposed to go back on to wherever it's back home on Sunday. I, I think if we win Saturday, I don't think they would go home for a week, <laughs> you know? So um, I, I think for me, um, I, I would love to win those races, obviously, because I, I, I'm a competitor. I want to win every time. But that being said, I, I'd love to win for those guys. Just, just you know, as, 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 you know, as a thank you for, you know, for su- supporting me and, and, and believing in the system and, and taking a shot at these races. And they're good guys. And, and, and like you said, I would, I, would love to, I would love to do it for them. You know, I really would. And, and, and you're right. I think for them, I think for them it would be a, a very, you know, as close to a Breeders' Cup or a stakes, you know, stakes uh, feeling as, as possible. Winning on Claiming Crown Day is a big deal, certainly more prestigious than winning some $4,000 claiming race on a Tuesday afternoon at Delta Downs. That's because it's not just the little guys who come to Gulfstream to play. It's the one day that brings out the best this class has to offer. For example, Walder has Cree's Brooklyn Law running in the rapid transit, and the 3-to-1 morning line favorite in that race is I'm a G6, trained by Todd Pletcher, 
who has won more than 5,000 races in his career and whose horses have won nearly $400 million in their roughly 22,000 career starts. Then there's the biggest race on today's card, the $150,000 Claiming Crown Jewel. And they're off in the Claiming Crown Jewel. From the center, Letone, one of the first to get underway. Here's Create Again being sent through on his inside. And Create Again's going to... The favorite here is Jesus's team, coming off a third-place finish in this year's Preakness and a second in the Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile. Six months ago, Jesus's team was running in an optional claimer at Gulfstream. Now he's running the jewel as a prep for next month's Pegasus. Then there's the Emerald in which five of the 12 entries will be trained by Mike Maker. No trainer has saddled more claiming crown winners than Maker, who's had 17 of them. But even a trainer, whose resume includes a couple of Breeders' Cup victories, appreciates what the claiming crown means to everyone involved. You know, and I think everybody in racing has the same goal. They want to win, and they want to run at the highest level. And, you know, the the, the people that, uh, you know, maybe spent 5000 or 10000 and come to the claiming crown and then you know like you said enjoy the lucrative purses i think it's a very special form one of maker's horses who didn't draw into the emerald field on saturday was sniper kitten who runs for the most accomplished owner in claiming crown history ken ramsey in his 50 plus years as an owner and a breeder ramsey has collected multiple breeders cup wins and eclipse awards more than 2200 victories which would explain why it's impossible to find a picture of him online when he's not smiling in full beam. No owner has won more races at Churchill Downs than Ramsey and his wife Sarah, and no owner has won more claiming crown races than the Ramseys. In fact, no other owner has more than the four wins Ramsey's horses posted in the 2012 meet alone. My greatest memory is in 2012, that's the first year they had the claiming crown at Gulfstream, we won four, and uh, the one that got beat, the, just the narrowest by, oh, my gosh, we, a horse called Major Marble. We, Major Marble. We thought we won that race. We all dashed into the winner's circle, and uh, even the people that we beat thought we won. But anyway, we ended up losing that one. But uh, Major Marble went on and won the next year quite easily. And then also I took him down to Barbados, and he won the Barbados Gold Cup for me. So uh, anyway, uh, after rushing the winner's circle, not getting in, then we end up winning four. Uh, we end up upsetting the uh, $200,000 jewel with a horse called Parents Honor. It went off at 16 to 1 in a field of 11. And uh, not only did we turn the hat trick by winning three, but uh, end up winning the finale, uh, what you might call a spectacular pick four. Ken Ramsey turned 85 a month ago, and he won't be down at Gulfstream this weekend a rare missed opportunity for a world-class horseman who enjoys any time he gets to be where the action is, no matter who's running. But the safest bet of the day is that the Ramses will be watching the action going on at Gulfstream on the biggest day of the year for horse racing's little guys. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm, I'll be watching and I'll be betting with both hands from up here in Kentucky, and uh, we enjoy seeing our grandson Nolan saddling the horses you know, on the television, because he'll be down there with Mike, and uh, they've got all these horses running. So from that standpoint, I got a big screen TV. We'll be sitting here, and I got got my betting account. So we'll we'll, we'll go from there. 
Thank you for sticking with this episode of the Out of Left Field podcast all the way to the wire. If you want to follow the Claiming Crown races today, you might want to set up a first bet account and stream the races through that service. We'll include a link in our show notes, which will be posted to our website, outoflf.com. I want to thank everyone who was involved in telling the story of this unique race day. Mike Maker, Mr. Ramsey, Peter Walder, my guy, Steve Schubert. I want to thank Dan Metzger of Toba and Eric Hamelback of the National HBPA for their tremendous help and insight and for providing access to the race calls. And a big shout out to Equibase, who has nothing official to do with this podcast, but was an essential resource in researching this episode. I want to thank our friends who make every episode possible, Electricraft and their Espressioni Concierge coffee maker, Everripe Superfood Smoothies, and Soggy Doggy Doormats. You'll hear more from them in coming episodes. And we thank you for listening and supporting and sharing the Out of Left Field podcast. We'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you're listening. A five-star review would be greatly appreciated by our own little long-shot outfit here. We'll be back next week with another sports story from Out of Left Field. Until then, stay healthy, mask up, and go pick me a winner.